The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com slash disclosures. Yeah, so we should probably, let's go ahead and get started. The first question I have for Ali is, Ali, how, how did Fab get to be your hero? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was, I was, uh, I was thrilled to see him actually at one of your events. Uh, well, you know, I mean, um, as kids, uh, you know, growing up uh, in Sweden, uh, you know, we listened to. I mean, we were kind of the outsiders. We listened to hip hop, and you know, he was on uh, Yo MTV Raps. Uh, <laughs> wow, I tell you, so, it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I used to record that stuff on like a tape recorder and replay it because, you know, in Sweden, like the time zones would get wonky. So, um, yeah, it was like a big deal. And it was hard for us to get our, you know, hands on music over there. Uh, so, you know, I used to tune in, record it. Uh, so I couldn't believe my eyes when I saw you at, uh, I think it was Ben's Barbecue. <laughs> yes, I've been to many CEO barbecues and it's, it's amazing. You know, when I was doing that show, UMTV Raps, a lot of people here never knew that, it was one of the few MTV shows that were on all this in all the satellite markets. So really a thrill that so many people in Europe and other places in the world got to experience, see it and hear it a little bit of uh, what was going on in the beginnings of, of hip hop. Thanks so much for tuning in, Ali. Well, let me ask you a question then, since we have you up, because I know kind of you got into because I happen to know this. I mean, you got into uh, hip hop super early, right? How did that happen? Like, you know, because you were kind of like, a, you know, trailblazer, like very, very early on in New York. How did that happen? Sure. Great question. So, you know, growing up in New York City as a kid back then, I guess you'd say in the 70s, it was just a, a music, an, an idea that the DJs would take their mobile sound systems out into the, the streets. The classic story now, they would often pop open the base of streetlights in parks or on a street in the summertime, plug in their big sound systems and just have this like impromptu party. And then this whole like, hey guys, I'm here and I'm just going to reinvent who I am. And it was just this exciting thing that developed in New York along with this thing that I got in, I took part in as well, um, street art, you know, graffiti originally, just painting our names, and then that developed into a whole form. So I was just an early adapter that believed it was way bigger than everybody else outside of the inner cities knew. And I believed that it really was. So I campaigned to kind of, you know, bring a wider audience to it. I dived into the punk rock scene in New York, which was in early stages of development. It just seemed like there would be some open minds. And I found many, and most famously, um, people from the group Blondie, um, who were the biggest punk new wave group at the time. And they were like, yes, we love this. It's exciting. So I would. Ex it was like a cultural exchange I set up with them. They introduced me to a lot of cool folks, including, including Andy Warhol. And then I eventually took them to an early hip-hop party in the Bronx. And then they went and made a record called Rapture, which was, when was that record that kind of went global, that people got an inkling of what this rap thing was all about. Yeah, like yeah, 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 Debbie Harry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When was that, that, that party? You were in that video, weren't you, Pfaff? Yes, I was in that video. video. Yeah, yes. yeah. 
So that whole crew in the video, Rapture, were people that I became friends with on the downtown scene, including Jean-Michel Basquiat. He was in the video. We were all meeting at the same time, trying to figure out a way into pop culture, essentially. And Blondie, they believed in us. And that became one of the first videos that MTV would play. And so when they finally got up the... the you know, realize, wait, man, this culture is developing, growing. We got to represent this on this channel, which was not showcasing much of any Black music. And they said, well, wait, he's the guy that was in this Rapture video, and he's been <laughs> in this first movie on hip-hop called Wild Style. Let, let's give it a shot. And that shot turned into the highest ratings MTV had had at that time. And Yo! MTV Raps was on the, was on the move and eventually would be picked up in Europe, and people like you, Ali, would get a chance to see it, which was super exciting to me. Um, to the, awesome. The fact that it That's had so reach. amazing. Yes, that was it. That was the beginning. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. No, thanks for sharing that with us. That's awesome. Ben, I can a good segue. <laughs> yeah. So we have. A, we'll go to our first question, which is: um, Can you talk about finding contrarian strategies, challenging assumptions, and of course? The assumption of the music industry was that hip hop wasn't music, so that was one contrarian idea. But Ali, maybe you want to um, pick that up. Well, I mean, yes, uh, that's a great question. Um, pretty much any successful company started with some contrarian strategy that someone was betting on. So I think it's—I I can't think of many companies that actually did it that didn't start with some contrarian strategy, something that people didn't believe in. Um, you know, maybe you can give some examples because this might, this must apply also to funding and VCs. Well, I think that, yeah, no, no, it's, it's definitely true. And we kind of call it, and my partner Chris Dixon kind of came up with this phrasing, but um, we look for, uh, you know, good ideas that look like bad ideas. <laughs> because huh. if it's not contrary and if it's a good idea that looks like a good idea, it's not really a breakthrough because yeah. other people will have thought of it and in particular like you know really big companies will have thought of it uh, and so like for example if you were saying oh i'm going to build a battery for a cell phone or for a smartphone that's lasts twice as long that's a good idea everybody wants that um, but <laughs> it's so obviously a good idea apple and samsung and you know, everybody else had been working on it for years and have unlimited money to spend on it. And so it's a terrible startup idea, uh, you know, as opposed to, you know, an idea that's kind of contrarian, like, you know, Brian Chesky at Airbnb when he started and he said, okay, I'm going to blow up an air mattress, stick it in my apartment and rent it out. Like, you know, that sounds like a bad idea, right? So, but, but that's, it, all innovative, truly innovative ideas, most people will think are stupid or they wouldn't be innovative, right? They'd just be ordinary. Amazing. Uh, in fact, you know, I would say the only companies that maybe don't do con contrarian strategies and succeed are probably big companies because they can be fast yeah. followers, right? Right. And they, you know, they've got giant market share. And, you know, if something is a good idea, everybody will do it. But you can't. You can't build a company off of something that, you know, a million other people have already thought of. Like, that's not a, that's not a breakthrough enough concept to create a whole, you know, company that's going to live in the world. Yeah. 
All right. And, you know, we see it all the time. And, and then the more people get furious at the idea the because it's so bad, probably the better it is, which is, you know, one of my favorite things about like cryptocurrency is that people get so angry about it. You know, it's a great breakthrough idea. <laughs> yeah. Just on that it, basis. Until it becomes obvious. Until it becomes yes. obvious. Yeah, no, and then at some point it will be. And, you know, Mark talked about on uh, kind of our last show, you know, kind of the story of paper money, which had the exact same reaction that people are having to crypto, just like that's the most stupidest thing in the world. Da, 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 da. It's got to be gold. <laughs> so, oh, well. That's a great question. So what's the next one? Yeah. Okay, so isn't it time – artificial intelligence do more meaningful problem solving in areas like agriculture or public health where there is a lot of data and impact is at scale? Well, that's almost layup for, for us. I mean, Databricks literally has a lot of use cases in the healthcare industry. Like during the pandemic, uh, we saw pretty much every vaccine team use us behind the scenes. And what they use is they use something called Rule association. Rule association is a way where you can find correlation between two things. So you can try to mm -hmm. figure out um, if we have millions of people taking this vaccine and they have side effects, is that because of that vaccine or is it just something that you, would happen otherwise? Ah, um, uh, yeah, that confused, you know, by the way, that confused the public to no end. So I'm glad somebody was actually figuring out the real answer. Right. So you can do those things. Um, finding the genomes responsible for diseases. Lots of healthcare companies do that. Um, you know, finding a relationship uh, between you know claims data and electronic medical records. We have so many use cases in healthcare. It's actually one of the biggest ones. So there's lots and lots of AI that's solving meaningful problems there. But the problem is, we call those boring AI. No one wants to write about mm -hmm. those. Uh, you know, media doesn't oh, right. find those interesting. So media prefers talking about you know self-driving cars and ex machina and you know, those kind of things, Alexa devices right. and taking over humanity. And, you know, Elon Musk is like egging on everybody on with those things. But right. but there's lots and lots of use cases in, in, in healthcare. Um, uh, and, you know, agriculture, we actually have one of our coolest use cases is actually John Deere. They make these tractors and all of these tractors have sensors and they spew out lots and lots of data. Uh, and in real time, they can then optimize sort of crop yield, fertilizer, water, all that kind of stuff. And they determine it all by just uh, looking at when, where, how they're going to actually use these tractors. And they actually produce better yield. So all thanks to AI, a super sophisticated use case by a company you wouldn't think, you know, would be using AI. So, so there's lots and lots of use cases. And these are just some of them. There's, in every industry, you'll find use cases where AI is used. Uh, but maybe it's not as kind of, you know, as existential or sexy as some of the other use cases that uh, you can find in the newspapers all the time. So are the vaccines good since you have all the data? Well, I don't know if I have all the data. And by the way, we sell the <laughs> platform and they use it. Yeah. They don't necessarily share their insights uh, <laughs> with us. But I mean, yeah, they're amazing, right? I mean, uh, at this point, you know, hundreds of millions of people have gotten them. Uh, yeah. And so far, and, so good. And so. very, yeah, very few, very few stories. I mean, they, you know, that's one of the things that I think has uh, been very hard to understand about COVID and treatments and vaccines is, you know, people don't understand really, 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 really large numbers. And, yeah. you know, now I was just looking at, you know, the, the number of COVID deaths in the U.S. now is right around the number of deaths by household accidents. 
um, like tripping yep. over your cat, slipping in the bathtub, et cetera. Um, so, but, you know, if you hear a number like, you know, 150,000 people would die in a year if we stay at this rate, it's like, oh, my God. Um, but we're actually used to 150,000 people dying from tripping over their cat and slipping in the bathtub, but we don't talk about it anymore. And, you know, similarly with car accidents, I think it's about 44,000 a year. Uh, but, you know, so we're, we're getting to kind of what we would consider a normal death rate. Uh, but, you know, you hear people say things like one death is too many. Well, like when you have 350 million people, like you have more than one death for lots of things. And so... Uh, you know, it, it, it's, you know, a challenge of, I think, in general, as a country, we're not that good at math and uh, not that good at dealing with large numbers. So maybe AI will, will save us from that, too. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we can explain what's actually going on. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's I think we need to give people a sense of understanding stats and data. You know, kids yeah. go to school and they learn algebra and this kind of stuff. These days, that's not needed. You can just use a calculator. Maybe we should teach them more data science. Um, you know, and you can also use it in your advantage. I saw that there was one state where they couldn't get enough people to vaccinate, and they said, "Hey, if you come and vaccinate, we'll hand out a lottery and we'll give five people a million dollars." And I thought that's yeah, kind of yeah, yeah, and and everybody took the vaccine. <laughs> yeah, which is a, people, I, I think it. It's a great lesson about, you know, the country, which is like carrot works much better than stick for us <laughs> um, yeah. for whatever reason. So like the whole idea of we're going to, you know, make everybody take the vaccine or whatever. Actually, the lottery seems to be a more efficient way to get that done. Yeah, I'll say this thing on stats, though, then we can move on to the next question. Yeah. People should look at excess mortality for COVID. Excess mortality, you compare mm -hmm. how many people died this week compared to how many people died this week let's say between 2015 and 2019 on average. Right. And then you can just see, and that includes all causes. Cause you know, with the shutdown, you know, there are less accidents and people are at home mm -hmm. and there's less flu. Uh, but you know, but then there's the, there's the whole pandemic and everything that comes with that. And actually, if you look at excess mortality, uh, it's actually below, you know, what it used to be uh, in recent time in many countries, it's actually below what it has been previous pandemic. So the okay, so, actually, so we're you know, getting to the end. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's actually below what it used to be. So it's actually even better than what has been in previous years. Um, so it's working. All right. Well, that's that is good news. Okay. So here, here's a, a more snarkier, harder question, but it's it's a good question, which is, and it's kind of directed at me. Did did you expect everyone to copy drop-in audio? Um, and so before I answer that. Um, you know, one thing that I thought that was kind of interesting about this question uh, is, and they're directing it at Clubhouse, of course, and me, is, you know, when we invested in Databricks, um, one thing I knew with certainty was that Amazon, Microsoft, and almost every other gigantic mega cloud vendor would offer Spark in the cloud, um, which was the kind of first product of Databricks. Um, and so did, was I stupid to invest in Databricks? A little bit of a rhetorical <laughs> question, but. <laughs> that, that's, yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Look, if you're successful, people will copy you, period. So yeah. it's more dangerous if no one, if, if you talk to Twitter and everybody else and they're like, no, we're definitely not doing uh, drop-in audio. Well, that, that means it's not working, yeah. Yeah, so like when, when lots of people, that, you know, when it becomes obvious lots of people, there will be lots of other vendors. And when you're successful, you'll notice 
even the things that you were doing that are not even you didn't think would take off, you f find people copying it all the time. They'll copy the even they'll copy the architecture and what you call call it. Yeah. Uh, and that's when you know that you're in a leading position, that you're kind of leading the way. So then just keep at it because it's hard for the people that are copying to get ahead of you and out to innovate you because there's almost a different mode you're in in your head when you're copying, right? You're kind of trying to study mm -hmm. the person you're copying. You're trying to see what are they doing so well. And you're trying to copy that so well. And you're trying to imi imitate them as well as you humanly can. But when you're in that mode of imitating, you're not thinking, how would I leapfrog that whole thing? How would I do that completely differently? How would I completely beat these guys and get ahead of them? You don't think like that. Yeah. So people right. that imitate and copy end up just being like always two steps be behind you. So I think it's a good thing when people are actually um, trying to copy a thing. I mean, this happened with many things, right? I mean, um, there was Facebook. I remember, you know, um, Google uh, had, you know, the whole thing, you know, uh, with space, yeah. spaces well, and all of that. Thing, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, they, uh, did, uh, they did a whole social network, yeah, Google+. Plus. Yeah. Which they spent uh, you know, unlimited yeah. money on, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's when they copy you, it's actually usually a good sign. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, look, I think that if they don't copy you, you're dead. If they do copy you, you might lose, but at least you're in the game, you know, is, is always the way we think about it. And, then, you know, the reason for that is, you know, if you're a new company and you come up with something good, there are many companies that have way more money than ideas. And what those companies do is they copy. You know, they don't have their own ideas. And so they, they, they have to react to your ideas and they do have a lot of money and a lot of people and they're going to go after it. But as you said, you know, it's one thing. Um, and I remember that there were so many Pinterest clones early on that that was probably the, one of the most cloned companies we had. But what they couldn't do is they didn't know what Ben was going to build next. <laughs> and so yeah. their software architecture wasn't actually built to do his next move. It was only built to do his last move. And so they yep. were always kind of at a disadvantage. And then the other, I think, um, challenge for the copiers uh, is that, you know, what kind of person wants to build a product that's a copy of somebody else's product? Like where you're literally your product requirements are, can you copy Clubhouse? Just copy Clubhouse. No, don't come up with any of your own. Just copy theirs. Like that's literally the the instructions these guys are working with. And so, you know, like it's hard to do that and have self-respect. And so I think it's hard to sustain a great team, which is the other thing you need to really compete. So while the startup has less money, they do have some real advantages. And that doesn't mean you win, um, but it does mean um, that at least you're in the game. Yeah, it's hard to – that's a great point. It's hard to hire Ben Silverman to have him copy someone else. Yeah, to have him copy Ben Silverman. <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. He's not going to be motivated by that. So he'll want to think outside the box and come up with the next innovation. Um, so yeah. there aren't that many examples where the copier won over the person they copied. Um, I don't know if you want to get into Netscape or not. but uh, <laughs> Yeah, no, you know. okay. no I, I think Netscape is, de is definitely uh, worth talking about um, because – so, you know, that was one where, you know, at the time – not only did Microsoft have 97% desktop market share, um, which was just like basically yeah. there, there were no phones, right? Like so <laughs> at that time, there was only PCs. So if you could imagine 
if if there was no Android and it was just Apple and you were competing with Apple, <laughs> yeah. you know, for something that you charge for that they bundled in free, um, yeah. that would be like a really difficult competitive situation. But even in that, and and then they actually went further and you know did some things that caused them to get a you know the government to come down on them because they were doing even illegal things against us, um, and you know even with all that, Netscape, which uh, started in 1995, sold four years later for you know the the final sale price was 10 billion dollars. And look, ten yeah. billion dollars in 1999 was a lot of money, uh, yeah. and so you can build ten billion dollars in value in four years and lose. Like that's a pretty good loss. Uh, so yes, uh, I, I do think that people are going to copy you. You may not win, um, but it's much worse if people don't copy you. Uh, you know, particularly yeah. in a in a field like social networking where there are very big players. Yeah, that was an awesome question. Hey, yeah, that's a great question. I, I just wanted, yeah, I just wanted to, I just wanted to add a note to the to the point to the uh, a minute ago, just in talk, talking about copying, and then in thinking about the creative world. Um, you know, we often used to say on the street, you know, innovate, never, never duplicate. But then, <laughs> often but then, imitated, never duplicated. Okay, but then, <laughs> who was that? Was that Mister Magic? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> the Magic, who was one of the early hip-hop radio DJs. But you know, the, yeah. the point of the remix is also something that grew out of hip-hop culture, which one could think, you know, people, oh, I love the way that beat sounded, what the, how that, you know, how that thing was created. But then instead of copying, doing a, a remix, which is so connected to so much, I think it's analogous to the points that were being made. And I think that remix, when, you know, could lead lead to something new, something new and innovative. Once again, not copying, but inspired by something that motivated someone. I just wanted to throw that in. Right, right. Kind of like postmodern art versus counterfeit art, almost like that Correct. kind of idea. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, so you build yeah, no, on I, the existing I, thing. Yeah, and I think that's right. Like, I think people do... You know, there, there, there's a lot of ideas that take inspiration from, you know, something that somebody else came up with in uh, different ways, for sure. Um, and those things, it's just in, and those things do tend to work hard, better. Right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, in software, it just ends up being hard because there's so much work. Like, when you do the remix, you can just take the song and you can just build on it, right? Yeah. And you can apply your creativity to it directly. You don't need to like go remake and go through and recreate the original music all from scratch and go through all the pain that the person in software you kind of have to spend so much effort doing the software engineering that the copiers uh, tend to not add their kind of flavor or addition or take it to the next step at least i can think of many examples where uh the copy ended up being a remix that's so much better than the original uh, maybe there are some well, examples. No, I, I can think of one. Like, aren't you right. remixing the data warehouse right now? Uh, yeah, yeah, in, in some ways. <laughs> right? Uh, it's, a, it's, yeah. it's very different architecturally. It's open. Um, but it, it, you're going to take, you know, a lot of those ideas um, and kind of add them into your architecture. True, yeah. So the ideas maybe survive. But, like... This kind of copying that's happening in the software industry, where you just literally copy yeah. another product. I mean, you know, they just mentioned drop-in audio, right? Uh, yeah. 
I don't know. I haven't seen. I haven't actually seen looked at the other drop in audio solutions. But do they go far beyond what Clubhouse has? Like yeah, take no, it to a different no, no. level? No, a lot yeah. of them are like. E- even the kind of CEOs have said we're going to copy it exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's fascinating uh, relationship to like remixing. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that, that's a great point, Fab. Um, okay, so here, here's another interesting kind of one, you know, particularly talking to you and me, um, the balance between operational fundamentals versus founder market fit when assessing an early uh, opportunity. Um, so kind of, do you want a CEO or an inventor is kind of the way I would think of this, right? You know, is this something that, you know, somebody had a life experience and, you know, which built up to a point and they created something and they're then building the company around that? Or are you hiring somebody who's run a large organization and then comes in to kind of manage uh you know, somebody's idea. Um, and, you know, I think at the series operators. A, yeah, operators. Um, at the operators series versus a, I think, innovators. Right, right. I, I think everybody would agree that at the series A, you want an innovator over an operator. Um, yeah. You know, the kind of philosophy we built, uh, Andreessen Horowitz, on the idea that even much later, you would prefer the innovator to the operator, um, you know, not in every case, but, you know, we kind of designed the firm with the idea that it's easier to teach an innovator to operate than to teach an operator to innovate. Um, and, you know, in the technology business, a product cycle is short, right? It's seven years, maybe, is a long yep. cycle. You know, that's a good cycle. And so you have to invent the next product. So if the person running the company can't do that, then it really limits the kind of outcome of the company. And I think this is a very difficult concept for others to understand. You know, one of the re- there's a lot of talk about like the kind of uh, friction between tech and the press these days. And I think some of the origins of it um, are really from the fact that you know people who work uh, you know in journalism and in the press had enjoyed kind of this 400-year product cycle, uh, you know, with printed, you know, with the printed word and the business models were built on that and so forth, and it worked really well. And so it was a very huge shock uh, when the kind of internet broke that product cycle and you had this other kind of product coming out, which didn't have the same economics and, you know, didn't have the same kinds of things and didn't have the same you know, level of investment and exclusivity and all the things that you enjoyed in the old product uh, cycle. And of course, all the founders of the newspapers were dead by then or had sold out or whatever. So you you had all operators or kind of people who had inherited the business, um, like the Salzburgers or whatever, uh, not the actual founder innovator. And so, you know, it was a very scary and difficult time caused by technology, you know, caused by a text product cycle. So, you know, you can see why people would be mad about that. Um, but, you know, that's something that we live with all the time in tech. So, uh, you know, when we think about it, we really do prefer the innovator running the company. Now, some innovators are not capable of running a company um, for many reasons. You know, they don't have the desire or they don't have the, you know, certain level of 
EQ or, or these kinds of things. But but if it if they can do it, that's always better for us. Yeah, it's it's non obvious the bet you guys. I mean, frankly, even yeah. made on me right when the company was. <laughs> right, you're, you're, yeah. you're a professor. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or, or you so, were at the time. Or, yeah, that was the background. And, yeah. And in a lot of cases, you see uh, operators being brought in. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we saw that with uh, Snowflake and other companies were actually bringing uh, operators. Um, so it's interesting. So I think actually you guys are unique in that kind of viewpoint a little bit. Uh, it's not the norm in the market. Um, and yeah, I think yeah. Well, it, it was it, it was very unique at the time we started the firm, which is kind of what led. So you, you know, a lot of the design of the firm uh, is like, okay, assume that the CEO is the founder. Um, and then what do they need? And so that's why like the kind of massive investment in building a network for them so that they can feel like they can call anybody. And then, you know, all the operational experience that we, we kind of put in at the GP level was to help them learn the job. But that, you know, I think that's been kind of, you know, to, to the kind of industry's credit, I think most firms now are closer to us on that view than, than they were in 2009. Is it fair to say that uh, picking an operator uh, on average is probably better for the next three, four years, uh, you know, for the revenue and the financial outcome of the company and the right. picking the yeah, innovator in the yeah, long run is better? Right. Optimizing the current, usually like if you have a great professional, they can optimize the current product cycle better yeah. than the innovator. So like, I mean, I think you might even argue that for a product cycle, Frank Slootman will probably know what he's doing better than you do because he's done it six times before. But the yep. chance that he'll get to as good and following product cycle as you is very low because you understand the technology comprehensively and there's no way he does. And so it's, a, you know, it's that kind of contrast. It's the long and, you know, but that's what, and usually what happens is they cycle through the, the operators by that time, right? Yeah, they well, they come they in on four-year packages, right? They, they yeah. four, you, you don't have you, you have some stock that best over four years, but you have four, you have a life fucking commitment, right? Like the, the professional is going to have a, a a financial package that dictates the length of their stay. Yeah. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's a anyway. That that was a great question, um, and and that was from uh, Avanika Dying um, off Twitter. Uh, okay, so then your viewpoint on recruiting uh, salespeople in talent short markets, um, for example, uh, sales development reps. And these are for those of you who don't know what that is. They're called SDRs, and they're people who call. Um, to set up appointments and, um, you know, kind of generate leads for salespeople uh, are most in demand are the most in demand people right now here in Asia Pacific. The supply is very, very short. Companies are asking for six to 12 months SaaS cloud sales experience. But those with this want to move up into kind of a full sales rep quota carrying role, uh, not sideways. The challenge is stalling growth plans for a number of clients we are helping scale. Okay, so that's the question. Uh, well, why don't you start? Well, I think SDRs is like the awesome, uh, you know, it's an awesome role. Uh, we, we hired them out of school. Um, so, um, 
you know, it's, what schools? You know, I mean, we typically look at uh, hungry people with sort of competitive backgrounds because you know a lot of it is um, you know get on the phone. Kind of like sports. Yeah, yeah, you know, and we like team sports, but you know, if they have sports background, uh, you know, they're hardworking, they're used to sort of you know tough schedule. Um, it's it's you know it, you can you can it's an awesome role where you can take people from different backgrounds uh, and train them and bring them in like you know it's it's a role where you don't need someone that has 10 years experience or five five years experience this is not picking a ceo which is an innovator or an operator question this is a it's the most junior ro role you're bringing into the company so i think if you open your mind um it should be possible to find sdrs in any country any place um yeah i mean how did you yeah. guys do it i mean yeah no no like i think i i totally agree with that you know it's really interesting because you know, it's one of the places, one of the things that's always a challenge in the tech business because the jobs are so high skill, um, mm -hmm. is how do you get somebody who's really talented, um, but not from the talent pool that everybody's in, right? Like, okay, we're, I mean, how many companies are like, oh, we're hiring people from Google and Facebook and like Stanford and MIT and, and this and that and the other. And there are some jobs, uh, you know, like data science jobs and so forth, where, look, if they don't come from those places, it's very low chance that they'll succeed. Um, but there are other jobs that can get people into the technology game and into the kind of the whole universe of tech that don't require that at all. Um, and I think SDR is one of them. What you need to be a great SDR is, right, you need to be really motivated and, and hungry and willing to, like, reach out to people and get rejected and that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, you've got to, you know, you've got to be good with talking to people and, you know, understand them and, and these kinds of things. But if you can come in and do that, then, you know, over time you can do anything in a company. And so if you're going to, it's the best time to not go, okay, need a guy with six months experience dialing, dialing for dollars. It's like, no, you know, figure out the personality you want, um, the kind of, you know, the, the, the scope of the background. And one of the things that the Utah companies are great with SDRs because they get them, yeah. they get these Mormon <laughs> kids who at 18 years old literally have best. to go away on a mission for two years and knock on people's door and tell them like, you know, that God loves them and they should come you know, convert to the latter day saints. I mean, like that's a, that's a rough thing. And, and I, I actually read that they make good like they get like, they do it for like two years and they get like one or two converts a year. Like, so it's all rejection. So, you know, perfect training to be an SDR. Uh, and there are, you know, many, you know, many, <laughs> many LDS, you know, people coming off missions. Uh, but you know, one of, we have a company that, um, actually, you know, hired, you know, worked with uh, the anti-recidivism coalition and kind of got the most promising guys out of prison. You know, people who needed work, who, uh, you know, were very motivated. You know, they wanted to get back into life. They, you know, they served their time. And, you know, here's where, you know, it's a very easy kind of job to take a chance on somebody if you think they've got the talent and what it takes and so forth. So, you know, I think that this is... Uh, you know, just such a great opportunity if you have an SDR role to go out and find talent in a pool where nobody's looking, where you can just dominate and get great people and, uh, you know, change the course of your company and uh, change a lot of people's lives while you're doing it. So, 
Um, you know, excellent question. And um, I think a really, really terrific opportunity. Yeah. Internship programs are another way where you can get people early on. You know, yeah. if you can get people in interning with you, you can get them even younger. Um, yeah. So that's also something that works like invest in the in, in folks. But you're right. You can you can take a bet. This is a role where you can take a bet on someone. You know, they just need the grit and the attitude and, you know, the willpower. And if you're wrong, it's 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 not a big loss. It's easy to rectify. It's like you're not jeopardizing your whole company's future. Yeah, 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 no, definitely. Right, right. Like it's an easy uh, position to kind of bring people in and move them out of if you if you have to. Uh, yeah. Okay, this next question leaders, is. Uh, yeah, a lot of sales leaders grew up through the ranks, right? Started at SDRs and so on. And a lot of, you know, and a lot of great Mormon actually sales leaders, right? For everything you said. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, no, they, they don't stop at SDR, they keep going. Yeah. Um, all right, so the, this is a good question. Maybe Fab will have an opinion on this one. We've seen high-profile pro divorces with Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos. How do you manage <laughs> running a fast-growth tech company or even expanding a venture firm <laughs> and the toll it takes on your personal life? Uh, so what do you think, Ali? All right, or what I don't do you know. Think, I don't Fab? know those cases. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's a trick one. I, I think it's interesting because I think that, um, you know, there, there are certainly cases where like pressure causes people to get divorced, um, you know, in that you kind of neglect each other. But I think, you know, to me, the core thing is when you're building a company um, is a great it's an amazing growth experience. Like, and I'm sure you've kind of felt this, Ali, yeah. where you just learn so much about like people, about life, about markets, about business, about By industries, about politics. By yeah. yourself. Yeah, you just, yeah. Uh, and so the, that's the challenge is, you know, when in a marriage you kind of grow together or you grow apart. Um, and I think that... <laughs> You know, if you don't, um, if you don't have, if, if if your spouse isn't also truly your best friend, um, as you're kind of building something and growing that fast and that much, you know, you're eventually going to end up being a different person. And yeah. so, like, I think that's the thing that you have to strive for. And, you know, look, the great thing about that is the more pressure, the more you need that best friend. Um, and the only yeah. way to have a best friend, of course, is to be a best friend. And um, I, I just say I'm fortunate, uh, you know, that, you know, I have a best friend like that and my wife. And so, you know, we grew we grew together. And it's kind of weird because, you know, as a result, like, you know, you early in a marriage, you know, you kind of both come from families. And those families, in some ways, know way more about you than your spouse. But it's really been interesting with me and Felicia how different she is from her family because she's grown so much, and how different I am from my family because I've you know, we've just grown in different directions. We've moved so far from where we were. We're not. I mean, you know, I hate to say I, you know, not to say you know, like I, I still love all the people I came from, but. I've just like moved very far from that kind of original place that I was. I just yeah, like, I mean, I, I, yeah, 
I just ahead, like Fab. to jump in. I'm sorry. I just have to yeah, ahead, and say that <laughs> one of the one of one of one of the most inspirational couples, literally, and it has been is you and your wife, your amazing wife, Felicia. And I just think it's great boss talk. Thank you, sir. At this level, that I think um, people should pay close attention to because you guys are the most fun, the most you know, the most just. So much of everything, and it's just such a pleasure to, to see the way you work together, live together, the kids, everything. Amazing. Great, great advice. I just want to second that. <laughs> oh, thank you, Fab. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, the other, I, I'll say something. I'll, I'll give a snarky data science comment. I, I don't know if you look at the, the data science and the numbers of prevalence of divorces, if these cases that they brought up, Jeff Bezos and whatnot, if that's actually out of the norm statistically speaking, or if it's just actually it has nothing to do with lending. Maybe it's just the normal. I, I would think it actually falls into the kind of normal divorce rate, uh, you know, <laughs> you, which is like 50% or something. The, the AI answer, the large numbers where we started. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, that's, that's my question. Because, you know, I'll take the flip side of it. Uh, if well, I, someone... I think the question is a little bit about, you know, they have everything, uh -huh. but they, they don't have their marriage. Like, how, how can guys, I mean, these are the two of the richest people in the world. I think it was a little, so they're, they're not, they can't be treated as the regular population. Cause you know, I think most people think of themselves as getting divorced because of a struggle, but these guys weren't struggling when they got divorced. The opposite. Yeah. Um, but still, statistically speaking, <laughs> like maybe the divorce rate is higher for people there. That could be. Yeah, exactly. It's, isn't it 50 percent or something like that? So um, I don't know what is it among billionaires uh, at the very, very top. The <laughs> other thing I would say is uh, it's a good question. Know, the other advantage, I mean, I would say is if you've been with someone before uh, you became successful, then you know that they kind of, you know, they are your best friend and they love you for who you were like before. Like, you know, it's like, you don't, you never know that. Like whoever Jeff Bezos meets now is not going to evaluate him the way someone have, would have done in the 1990s or 1980s. <laughs> yeah, right. that, that, that is, yeah. Well, you know, and he married Mackenzie very young, you know, before he had the money and, uh, you know, Bill Gates was different. He was already Bill Gates when he married Melinda. Um, yeah. but, uh, yeah. but I, I think, you know, Jesus and Mackenzie, they, they were married forever. Um, okay, well, let's go. This next question is a great one because there's actually a story, which I don't know how this person would have known this story, but it's from Weston, uh, Westenborg. Uh, and he says, as a leader, when letting somebody go, is it better to be transparent with the team and let them know why it happened, a la Netflix, let the person being fired write the narrative as recommended in the hard thing about hard things or say nothing or be vague. Okay. So this is a great one. So, um, this is from Reed Hastings book, his new book, the no rules rules. Um, and I actually got into an argument with Reed cause I was a reader for that book and I wrote a blurb on it. And it's a great book. Um, but this was the one point I strongly disagreed with him on. So let me, kind of tell you what he said, and I'll tell you what I said to him. Uh, and so basically what he said is, you know, if you, everybody, like people are going to kind of know um, that somebody got fired. And so the kind of, the big test, and it's almost like if you, if you're, if you know math, 
you know, you know that you learn a tremendous amount about the boundary conditions. Those end up being kind of really, really important when you're mm-hmm. kind of uh, trying to understand how, how something works, an equation or whatnot. Uh, and, you know, he kind of applied that to management in that, okay, if you're really a transparent culture, are you transparent about firing people? I.e., when I fire someone, and he actually said, we sent an email explaining, <laughs> uh, you know, that they got fired and why to like everybody. And I thought that was a terrible idea. Um, and what I said to Reed was, look, I said, you know, my mentor, Bill Campbell, said to me years ago, he said, uh, you know, you have to take his job, but you don't have to take his dignity. And I always remembered that. And I think it's very important. Um, And I said to Reed, I was like, look, you think you're building a good culture by being transparent and telling everybody why somebody got fired. But I've never fired somebody in my whole career where there weren't two sides to that story. There was my side and what I thought was true, and there was their side and what they thought happened. And Hmm. for me to go to my company when this person has been fired and has no opportunity to defend himself and shit all over him in front of everybody for transparency, I don't think that improves the culture. I think that creates paranoia and other kinds of things. And worse yet, like, you know, I've done this to this guy and he doesn't even have a chance to tell his side of the story. And so I actually come out the opposite, as this person said in the hard thing about hard things, where it's like, look, you let the narrative be whatever you want. Like, I have to take your job, but I'm not going to take your dignity. And so whatever is dignified to you, that's what we're going to do. And I I still think that's a better way. But I'll <laughs> anyway, uh uh, you know, Reed kind of agreed with me on email, but he didn't change it in the book. So I don't think he totally agreed with me. He's a very hard person to convince. <laughs> but uh, the other thing is, like, if you actually want to have a culture where you fire people a lot, like when they don't deliver, like you do in Netflix, isn't yeah. being super transparent about why you're firing people going to make people even um, be more scared of that happening to them? Like, doesn't that create more fear for getting fired? Because, you know, they're well, going to kind of script me. Y- you know, I have heard that from, you know, people at Netflix, um, but I don't know. You know, he's obviously talked to many more people at Netflix than I do. But that that would be my worry. And I just, I just think it's kind of um, – look, the, the way I kind of conceptualize, you know, what you do in these companies is, you know, it's very hard. You know, everybody on the team is extremely talented. Um and it's not going to work out for everybody because the bar is so high and it's such a high kind of degree of difficulty. Um, but that doesn't mean they didn't put in an effort. That doesn't mean that they didn't make a contribution. Um, and that doesn't mean that they're like a bad person and won't succeed somewhere else. And so I just feel like, you know, if you put in an email that you cap somebody and why, you know, that email is going to live forever as emails do. And, you know, you've always got that, you know, you're putting like a scarlet letter on a person, which, you know, for the sake of transparency, whereas, you know, if you kind of let them explain it, yeah, some people will know they got fired and so forth, but it's not going to be like on the public record. And so I, 
I wouldn't do that at, at my company. You know, like, so for, for those of you adopting it, you can adopt what the way Reed does it, but like, that's not the way I would do it for sure. Yeah, we don't, we, we don't do it at Databricks either. Um, we let the person that's leaving um, come up with the narrative. Uh, and there's many yeah. reasons for that, uh, but I'll, you, you named some really good reasons. You know, I mean, you hired the person, so it's your mistake if it was the wrong hire. Yeah, yeah, like it's whose fault them. was it that they got fired? How much was it you didn't yeah. explain to them yeah. the job and pick the wrong fit? And, you know, you knew your company. You should have figured out they didn't fit in there. You know, they didn't know your company and all that. Kind of, like it's, it's very much also your fault when somebody gets fired. Yep. I'll give you a different perspective that, you know, a different angle on the same thing, which is um, – I've kept great relationship with the people that were let go and kept in touch with them and taken the high road uh, and let them have the uh, narrative that they need to have. And it's surprising how often in Silicon Valley, and, you know, you meet again, you know, your paths will cross again. References will be made. They'll ask you how you were. They'll ask you, you know, they'll ask them. Uh, so it's a small world and you meet again and again and again, and, you know, word gets around. So if you treat people well on their way out, you can maintain those relationships. Uh, those people have actually ended up helping me a lot uh, much later after they've left the company. So that's another reason to not sort of uh, completely burn every bridge uh, for the you know for some transparency reason or something like that. I also don't see what the benefit of it. Usually, what they fail at is nothing that the whole company will grok or understand. It's something you know that you know it's it's most people aren't aware of the details. So why are you exposing all that, you know, dirty laundry? It's not really needed. Yeah, yeah. No, that's. Uh, I, I, I definitely. I think we're in violent agreement on this one. So <laughs> perhaps. All we right. Should. Let's find one way yeah. to disagree. We we need to get read on and then uh, ask him. Yeah. Okay. So actually, this is a really good one that we have. Um, what are the best practices in effectively delegating responsibilities? I've been thinking about this actually recently because it is a tricky thing. All right. So why don't you go first? Yeah. So I think that um, the mistake, I, I've made two mistakes on this, um, or oh, I've made many mistakes. So one is like the obvious mistake is you give them the responsibility, um, but you don't give them, you know, any or enough context or training. Um, so, you know, away they go and you've been doing it and you've been doing it exactly the way you want it done. Um, and then all of a sudden you hire somebody to do that thing and they do it however they think it should go. And then you get frustrated because they did it wrong. Um, and so that, you know, that's the first thing is you, you, you kind of have to kind of think about like, okay, how do I do this? What's important? Um, you know, what are the kind of outcomes that I need for it to be done successfully? And make sure you communicate those. But I think the other thing is, you know, what I find is if it's anything complicated, like, you know, I'll just give you like a, a, a small but, you know, important example. Like, you know, when we go to win a deal, like I know how to, represent the firm and kind of sell and try and close that deal. I know why we built everything. I know that. So if I'm then asking like one of our partners to go do that, um, then, you know, there's a lot of knowledge there that has to be transferred. And, yeah. you know, we do a training for that. But what I found is the training doesn't really, you know, just saying this is how you do it 
is not enough. And so we added something that I know you have at Databricks and every kind of good sales organization has, which is, you know, we're, and this is an area where delegation is really critical. So people do it right. Um, you know, we have a, a deal review, which is kind of really, if you think about an account review in sales or a forecast mm -hmm. call or any of those things, all you're doing is you're testing the training. <laughs> you know, yeah. how are you going to go do this? Oh, no, don't do it this way. Remember from the training, you got to do it that way <laughs> and so forth. And so I think that without you need the training and the review um, and that review gives them that real time teaching that situational teaching, which is essential, I think, for delegation. Um, because if you just give the instruction or you just give the instruction with upfront training, you're almost certainly gonna be disappointed because these things are complicated. You wouldn't need to hire somebody to do them if they weren't complicated. And so, and I think a lot of people I see a lot of young entrepreneurs screw this up because, you know, I'm too busy. <laughs> I'm too busy to teach them how to do it. Um, so I'll do it myself. Well, that's the dumbest thing in the world. Yeah, that's that's training is that's a, that's a good one. I think you mentioned boundary conditions earlier. I think that's another good one. Mm -hmm. uh, provide, ah, right, right. You know, especially if you have people like, you know, if you have execs that have done this before, they don't want to be micromanaged by you. Like, they don't want you to like you know, uh, do that to them, give them boundary conditions, uh, you know, so like, this is kind of what success looks like. These are the metrics. This is kind of like the, the parts of like, I want this many deals closed. Right. Uh, and you know, you can have some milestones in between. And if you want the quality of it to be in a certain way, you can do some surveys on it. Uh, so you sort of put, but you don't tell them the exact, all the house, all the way to detail. Cause you know, at that point you're almost to the, you know, you're almost down into the weeds. Uh, so define boundary conditions and then let them fill in the details themselves. Uh, that way they have enough power to go execute on it themselves. Uh, but they're also kind of, uh, it's not completely just, you know, running amok and doing whatever comes to mind. Um, I think that's a good way. And then depending on how much you want to get into the details, you can define more and more of the boundary conditions that, down to the point where you've completely constrained it to uh, one particular solution and one particular way of doing it. Like you should pitch it this way. Here's the script which we do as well, like closing candidates, we have like a script and people get trained mm. on it. This is literally the talk track yeah. you should use. This is literally the links you should share. Um, and then, but for other roles that are higher level, you can't, you don't want to do that. You want to give them more flexibility, just define the boundary conditions, the KPIs, the metrics, whatever you want from them and then check in on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. Right? Right? Big, you know, big just, execs don't want yeah. you to like micromanage them. That's the thing. Right? They, they come, <laughs> yes, but, say, but they still before. need context. They still, yeah, they've done it before, but they still, you know, they haven't done it in your company. And this is, True. you know, this is one of the great, uh, I think, mistakes people make is they give too little direction to really experienced execs, not on how to do their job, but how the company works, um, what its strengths are, what it can do, what it can't do, you know, who the important people are, um, who you have to know, who can get things done. Like all that knowledge, um, you know, if you've been doing a great job at your other company and you come into my company, you're going to be lacking all that and that's going to hurt your effectiveness. And so, and I think that what you say is exactly right. They don't want to be micromanaged, <laughs> um, but they need that context. And so you got to figure out a way to have that conversation and get it to them.
Yeah, if, if you double click, sometimes you find out, I want to do this this way. If you actually give them the context, it turns out, yeah, that way we did it three times before. It didn't work. Yeah. You know, we did it that way three years ago and then five years ago. Here's what went wrong with it. Here's why that's problematic in this company. You're, you're right about the context. Um, but even once they have the context and they're at your company for a long while, do you just let them go and, you know, completely just do whatever they want and run their departments? Or, you know, I find putting okay. No, 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 because they, yeah. Yeah, well, Right. Like, are you on the same page? Um, and, yes. you know, so that's a lot of what context is like, to, because, look, you're evolving the strategy for Databricks at a very fast rate. And, yep. you know, it's evolving faster than you're communicating it. Um, so not everybody is on the same page. And so you've got to, you know, you, you got to give them that context. you got to say, look, you know, I used to think that, you know, the, the most important thing was, you know, whatever the, what was Jan's whole thing? Um, Spark is the leader and we're the leader in Spark. Like that yep. ain't it anymore. <laughs> you know, we, yep. we have other fish to fry. Yep. And, yep. and uh, you know, that's, that has to be done. And, and, you know, it has a different meaning to the head of sales than it does to the head of engineering. The head of engineering, you know, it means one thing that your Delta has become important to, you know, to to Ron, like it means something else, and you gotta you gotta make sure that you're you and he think th the same thing about that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we, maybe we can take one more question quickly. I, I see one here that I kind of find interesting. Okay, good. Uh, okay, what's the worst advice? You, yeah, what's the worst advice uh, you ever received from a, from another leader or from anyone else? <laughs> you know, it's so long <laughs> since I've worked for anybody else. I can't even. I, I don't even know. I can remember, you know, one bad piece of advice um, or, or it's kind of like a, just a bad management idea, I think, is, you know, in a way it was good advice, but a bad management idea, which is don't bring me a problem unless you have a solution. Um, <laughs> because, like, yeah. if there's a bad problem in the company, uh, you know, as, as the boss, you need to know about it. <laughs> um, so that's, like, too strong a, a phrasing. Like, I think as an employee, you should always – try and come up with a solution for any problem you have because, you know, that's, uh, you know, you're, you're creating value there. Um, but if it's a really bad problem and you can see it, but you have no idea how to solve it, you still should, should bring it up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. For me, probably the worst advice. I mean, um, you get a lot of, you know, from investors, you get a lot of advice on metrics you need to optimize. Like, oh, you need to really have good LTV to CAC. That's something you guys should improve. Revenue per employee, what well, someone told me. You should focus on revenue per employee. What's that metric? Yeah. Like? Whereas, you know, <laughs> yes. all along, you know, those, those things didn't make sense. So the things you should have told us yeah. you know, early days, build an amazing product and capture market share quickly. Like, don't focus yeah. on, you know, revenue per employee or something like that. So there's a lot of, like, yeah. metrics obsession uh, for startups out there. And they push you, you have to have this metric and that. And let me look at that. You should improve this. This is not best in class. And you almost start thinking about, you know, maybe I should run the company differently so that that metric becomes this way or that way. And that's just a waste of time. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely for sure. There's a lot. Well, there's just so many metrics that are relevant for one company at one stage that's not relevant for your company at its stage. And so, yeah, you really have to get to, you know, What's going to result in a great, successful company that, um, you know, what is Oracle graded on or whatever? All right. All right. Great. Well, thank you, everybody. Um, thank you, Fab, for being our special yeah, thanks, co host Fab. today.
Oh, man, thanks. It's been so great to be a part of, of this master class. And as soon as I, uh, this is over, I'm going to pull up the James Brown song, The Boss, <laughs> which is one of my favorites, <laughs> yes. which I think is like, the, which has been going on in my head. I paid the you cost. You got to pay the cost, baby. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> Thank you, guys. I think we're all going to listen okay. to that now. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, Thanks, everybody, for paying that cost. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Pat. Okay. Thanks, man. Okay, good night. Guys. See ya. Uh, see ya.